The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education uh, at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Today, we have a special program and we're here uh, to honor uh, a special person, John. We're here to celebrate John H. Holland and uh, his interdisciplinary life. And I'm I'm joined by two guests, two two people who were touched uh, in their education uh, by John. Today we have Eric Goodman, who's a principal investigator and director of the Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action, no association with Big Beacon. And then we have. Uh, um, John Koza, who is currently chair of the National Popular uh, Vote, uh, an organization seeking to elect the president by a vote of the people in all 50 states. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the show. Well, hello, Thank you, Dave. Dave. <clears throat> yeah, great to have great to great to have you. And um, I got to know you know both of you fairly long time ago uh, as as former Univ- University of Michigan uh, alums and, and former uh, contacts with, uh, uh, with John. But before we, we jump into celebrating uh, John Holland, um, listeners can read more about your backgrounds on the Voice America program page. But let's start with you, Eric. Uh, what one or two things should our listeners know about you before we get started in remembering John Holland? Well, yeah. Um, One thing is that basically I am fortunate to have my dream job be what I do on a daily basis. Uh, uh, I'm an interdisciplinary person by nature, and and today I get to work with uh, evolutionary biologists and computer scientists and engineers on a daily basis. in my earlier career, I directed for 20 years a CAD-CAM CAE center, and I said, that's enough. I'm never going to do something like that again. And then when the idea for Beacon arose, and I saw that uh, it would involve this kind of uh, uh, multidisciplinary work, I just said, oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> this is what I desperately want to do. So it's, it's uh, been a, a wonderful thing, and we're in the middle of our – Beacon is in the middle of its uh, – 10-year uh, funding from the National Science Foundation as a science and technology center. So uh, we're, we're going strong, and it's just a marvelous place to work. 
Well, and it's and it's great to have you here, Eric, both professionally and personally. And and John Cosa, uh, you're you're leading this movement to elect the president by popular vote, but you've you've had a career that's led through printing lottery tickets and having some of the key patents on scratch off lottery tickets and all sorts of things. What what one or two things should our listeners know about you before we get started? Well, they should know that. Uh, <clears throat> Um, Eric Goodman and I were both students of John Holland at the University of Michigan uh, in the 1960s in the communications science or computer science program at the time, uh, and that we both uh, uh, graduated from University of Michigan and, and went on our separate ways. Uh, I was in business for 14 years immediately after graduating, and then I uh, got involved with uh, sort of remembering John Holland and genetic algorithms uh, uh, starting in 1987 and did research in what's called uh, genetic programming, which is a variation of uh, John Holland's genetic algorithm, uh, published four books on that subject, and uh, I continue to do a small amount of scientific research in that area, but I am currently uh, more heavily involved in this uh, political project. Well, and of course, you're maybe being a little bit modest. You're in some ways the inventors of modern, the inventor of modern genetic programming, and hold uh, all the key patents in, in in it. So, but I guess uh, you know both of you are sort of uh, off the beaten path from kind of a narrowly nerdy view of what computer science is about. And on this program, we celebrate unleashing experiences where people have the courage to get off the beaten path and do. Um, uh, cool stuff. Let's start with you, John. Were there what? What were some of the? You know, you've you you lived a, a life uh, out loud as a businessman and and doing cool things. You know, how did? What were some of the things that that uh, enabled you? Some of the early experiences that enabled you to to go your own way. Well, I think the uh, formative uh, uh, thing. Uh, was the very interdisciplinary program of the University of Michigan uh, in the 1960s at a time when there were only three uh, nascent programs in computer science, uh, the, the one at University of Michigan, uh, largely because of the impetus of, of John Holland, uh, was an extremely interdisciplinary program. Uh, and I got into it, uh, first met John in... Uh, uh, as a student in um, an, an introductory computer science course in 1963, uh, when the university had a, uh, 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 what was then the first undergraduate program um, in computer science, and I was an undergraduate, and during the first, during my undergraduate years, I got exposed to John's uh, ideas. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting. I, I and I, I've been thinking back. You know, and I, I was also a student of John's, and and I've been thinking about his influence to sort of jump long, that to go out, like it, he just normalized the whole idea that that it, you could go beyond boundaries. And we're going to talk more about this, but it just seems like uh, his example gave a lot of us the permission to uh, jump long. Eric, how about you? What were some of your unleashing experiences? Well, the the key thing for me was when I was a college sophomore, I discovered computing. Up until that point, I kind of had no idea of what I, you know, I was going to be a science guy, right? But yep. uh, no, no particular thing really lit me up. And I worked hard in my classes because 
I should work hard in my classes. And then I took a course in computer programming, and I just said, oh, my God, this is, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and uh, uh, my interest in computer science just bloomed. And then when I got to the University of Michigan uh, as a graduate student, uh, Holland completed that. Uh, I'd been interested in genetics since I was a kid because my father was a geneticist. Uh, but until I met Holland, I'd never seen any connection between the genetics and my interest in computer science. And all of a sudden, here's a guy who's saying, oh, well, we're going to do evolution in the computer. And I'm saying, oh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> and, and the rest was history. I, I used, used it while I was there for my Ph.D. thesis. I uh, used a genetic algorithm. Uh, and I uh, started using it when I came to Michigan State on the faculty in systems ecology, and then I uh, used it in my CAD CAM center to evolve designs for automobile parts and things like that. So it just became a part of me. Yeah, very cool. And and you know, I was, I was thinking back that you know, and, and it's interesting the different kinds of unleashing experiences people can have. I there's this uh, nice video about coding where guys like. Uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and and uh, and others talk about how the getting their first computer and computing is a way in for many into sort of getting a sense of self confidence and self confidence confidence that to go out in the world and do stuff. There's a there's something sort of interestingly self contained about computing that's maybe special in that way or, or special that that you can sort of do it on your own of course we're talking the 1960s and 70s here so we're talking a different era we're talking maybe even wire boards and punched cards and things that are unfamiliar to to um, you know people with uh fancy laptops on their desks today absolutely <laughs> yeah a different era. Well, well dave in terms of a specific unleashing experience in my case um, there was a seminar in 1964 on adaptive systems, and uh, one of the things that we looked at, at in the seminar run by John Holland was uh, the notion that you could um, get a computer to program itself. And there was some. There was a paper, a very simple uh, uh, approach, uh, uh, not very effective, obviously, but it. Uh, stimulated the idea, at least in my mind, and I, I'm sure the other people in the seminar, of, of whether you could get computers to program themselves uh, to solve problems. Yes, and, and, and uh, that was part of a whole series of uh, seminars that actually then lead into the genetic algorithm conferences that come, come later. So, um, and, and and I guess I'm sort of interested, you know, so we, we've been talking fairly generally, but what, you know, um, and maybe John, start with you. What was, what was your earliest contact with John? And you mentioned that this is back in the sixties. When was that? And, and, and what were your first impressions of, of, of John back then? Well, my first impression was in, in the uh, fall of 1963, when I took the uh, first computer science course in the series yeah. Uh, that the department offered. John was one of, uh, I think, two professors. Uh, obviously, he uh, uh, made quite an impression on an impressionable undergraduate. Um, I was the second undergraduate uh, in the computer science uh, program um, at the time. And uh, we had the basic computer science uh, uh, course, and then it led to this seminar on adaptive systems where it got into this 
notion of whether you could program a computer to play a game like checkers or whether you could get a program to program itself to solve uh, some particular problem. Cool. And so um, how about for you, Eric? What were your... Um, what was your what was your first contact with him, and what were your impressions of well of him? my my first contact i was I got to Michigan only in nineteen sixty eight and uh, as a uh, uh, phd student uh, and so my first contact with John was when he taught a uh, graduate course uh, in adaptive systems, and he taught two of them adaptive yeah. systems to him are what we would today call uh, kind of a mixture of uh, evolutionary computation or genetic algorithms and complex system stuff. There was, there was a little bit of each of those in there. Uh, and I took those two courses, and, and uh, after the first course, he had invited me to become a member of his research group, which was called the Logic of Computers Group. It was founded by Art Burks, one of the people who uh, was a co-patenter on the ENIAC computer, one of the early electronic computers, and, uh, and John. And uh, so it meant that I moved into... We were in a non-university building in rented space, uh, the Wimet building on 611 Church Street in Ann Arbor, and uh, uh, we had the big chunk of the second floor, and down in the basement we had two uh, computers that were available to our research group, uh, and uh, uh, it was a wonderful environment, and it was full of people from different disciplines. I got hooked up very uh, soon after I got there with a guy named Roger Weinberg, who had a Ph.D. in biochemistry or molecular biology, something like that, and was coming back for a second Ph.D. Uh, under uh, John Holland uh, at, at uh, the University of Michigan. So a very talented guy, and, and he got me hooked on uh, biological modeling, and I did that for much of the remainder of my career. Uh, so uh, Holland was a, a marvel at putting uh, multidisciplinary people uh, together. Yeah, and 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 we should probably uh, and, and be a little careful. We've got a, a a general audience here, so when we use the word evolutionary computation or genetic algorithm, we're talking about the idea of using the ideas from selection and natural genetics to evolve solutions to problems, or to you know, as in the case of genetic programming, to evolve uh, programs. And so it's, but it's pretty direct, and and it's a pretty direct uh, application by using things like mutation and recombination and crossover and other inversion and other kinds of operators with precedent in nature as a way to evolve solutions. And this was a big part of John's work, of course. I met John uh, in the um, in 1980. I had left the University of Michigan with my master's and bachelor's to go off and oh, uh, cal- uh, do calculations and programming for uh, liquid and gas pipeline systems. And I was coming back to do a civil engineering degree. And uh, my first impressions of John were a little bit strange because I was looking to take the, the regular artificial intelligence course. And I, but it was canceled. And so I could see my dreams of my artificial intelligence uh, thesis going up in smoke. So I went, looked through the catalog, and I found this course called Introduction to Adaptive Systems, which I think is the same one that you, that you took in the 60s, Eric, but uh, updated a little bit with current, current thinking back for 1980. And so I went to class, and there was this youngish-looking guy who wasn't all that young. 
um, mm-hmm. and uh, supremely confident talking about this really weird mix of stuff that it just blew my mind, as at least it blew an engineer's mind. I was not ready for someone jumping from economics to genetics to and then doing mathematical analysis on it, uh, and then then and then and then. Uh, telling cool stories about it so and how it all fit together but uh, that was my first impression and i i remember thinking of him as youngish looking at the time even though i believe at the time he was in his 50s already and uh and full of energy and life i i guess is how i i i have always thought about john it's just like he's so like a pixie or you know there's a special spirit inside of him that uh, that always uh uh struck me so um so and eric you've already alluded to this you were in the logic of computers group um it was the nature of your uh your work relationship with with him how did you end up working with him uh, during your phd studies well um the uh interesting thing was that that he was always around and he was always available uh, if you had a question, uh, you could pop in and, and ask him. I was working on a genetic algorithm for much of my time, although also uh, doing a, a model uh, of the bacterium E. coli, kind of a very lumped uh, model at a high level with something like 40 different biological pools. Some of them were individual uh, chemicals, but many of them were lumped uh, because that was about all we could do at that point in time with our with our current knowledge, and so, uh, but I would uh, stop in, and he could uh, answer questions for me. Uh, uh, he he uh, was uh, also somebody who just hung out with the students. We would have lunch at the Logic of Computers group. He would be around. Yeah. Uh, we would uh, uh, banter. Uh, he uh, he would uh, engage. Uh, us and, and have us tell about what we were doing uh, around the other students. Uh, people were working on wildly different things. I mean, a guy that, that was in the same office with me was a graph theorist, um, and yeah. he was part of the Logic of Computers group. And uh, uh, another guy was another student of Holland's who was working on inversion, uh, and that's something which has turned out not to play out very well, but uh, uh, it was something that John had been thinking about uh, uh, in uh, evolutionary computation since the, since the very beginning, and uh, so he had a student named Dan Cavicchio working on it there, yeah. and we, uh, we, we all hung out together and uh, played uh, uh, games together and, and uh, so forth. Great, and John, I want to get your your take on on that same question. But we're going to take a we're going to take a little break. Uh, this is Big Beacon Radio. We're we're here celebrating uh, John Holland with Eric Goodman and John Coza. And when we come back, we're going to tell a few more stories about working with John, and then explore um, some of his ideas. boardroom to you voice america business network do you want greater success in bringing change to your university college department or classroom are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change would you like to boost your own academic business or technical career let david e goldberg of three joy associates help 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. We're here uh, celebrating John Holland and interdisciplinary life with Eric Goodman and John Coza. And in the last segment, uh, Eric was telling some stories about how John was kind of a guy hanging out with uh, graduate students. Um, you know, games and, and, and uh, play and playfulness were a big part of his um, life. Uh, John, what, what do you remember about John in that sense? Well, picking up on, Dave, on Dave's comments about John's extraordinary vitality and, and Eric's comments about games, uh, uh, I was, at the time when I was a graduate student, which was uh, in the late 60s, uh, when Eric was uh, also on campus, um, John would actually uh, spend an extraordinary amount of time uh, playing uh, different games with, 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 with his graduate students. Uh, uh, in fact, we used to invent games sort of uh, from familiar games. So there was a game called Stratego, which is still out, still popular. Uh, we made it infinitely more complicated, uh, turned it into a, a, a board that was about three by three feet with all kinds of complexity. Um, but uh, I particularly remember uh, playing political game with him because uh, in the 60s, the... Uh, Electoral College was very much a subject of public debate because um, in the 68 election, uh, uh, George Wallace ran and took a certain number of electoral votes, um, and there were unpledged electors. So uh, we ended up uh, inventing a political game uh, that had uh, uh, called consensus that uh, sort of resembled running a presidential campaign and when you'd play it, it had some resemblance to how actual campaigns ran. We used to play this game for uh, literally uh, dozens of hours. Uh, uh, and if you think back to the 60s, first of all, to, to have any kind of social interaction with college professors was quite unusual. In fact, uh, there was no other professor at University of Michigan that uh, I ever had uh, a similar close uh, relationship with, um, and the game was just uh, would go on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, we played that game by email in the 80s and 90s. Uh, 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 after I long moved away from Ann Arbor and 
some of the other students at the time also, also had moved away from Ann Arbor, but we continued to play this game uh, into the 90s with John Holland uh, by well, email, which was, was just getting started at the time. Sure. Well, and then I guess, that in, and this was before the widespread availability of uh, video games, but I guess there were, there were the earliest versions of video games, what, on a PDP-8 or something like that in the Logic of Computers group, and Eric... Uh, I think you were involved in some of that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we had actually, it was a PDP-7. Seven. And we okay. had a, a special display that wasn't actually sold commercially. Uh, together with that, we, we christened it a 337 because its, its successor was a PDP-9 with that display. And that was called, a, by DEC, a Digital Equipment Corporation, a uh, 339 display. So, but what it was is a special display processor, processor that uh, uh, put uh, things on a uh, cathode ray tube and you could animate things and uh, it had its own display processor so the code was loaded uh, in, by the regular program in the, in the uh, uh, PDP-7 and then executed by the graphics processor. And one of our uh, students in Logic of Computers, a guy by the name of Dan France, uh, coded up a version of the, uh, probably the first uh, video game called Space War, or one of the early ones anyway, and a prior version of that had existed at MS, MIT on, an, on different hardware on a PDP-1, uh, but he coded it up for our 337, and several of us made modifications to it uh, 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 through our time as students there, uh, but the Space War game had, was, was very advanced. It had... Um, uh, gravity, which controlled your spaceships, and you were trying to shoot down your opponent, and the missiles were affected by gravity, which they hadn't been in, in many of the earlier versions. So you had to figure out orbits and uh, place your missiles so that they would arrive near the sun at the time when your uh, opponent was near the sun, and you essentially had solar panels for gathering energy. Uh, so when you were near the sun, uh, you picked up energy, so you couldn't just orbit away from the sun. You wouldn't have any energy left. Uh, so it was a marvelous game, and Holland absolutely loved it. And in <laughs> fact, after Dan France, the guy who wrote the game there at Michigan, Holland was the number, number two player, the number two best player. So he used to play all of us. We'd play at lunchtime. We'd sometimes be back in the evening and, and play Space War. And uh, uh, he even told a wonderful story uh, about how uh, when Dan France uh, went off to get married, some of us made some alterations in the code so that when, when he came back, um, he wasn't winning anymore, and we told him, well, this is, you know, you've, you've gotten married, you know, now that's, you know, you've lost your edge. <laughs> and Holland loved to, to tell this story. Great. And well, so... I, um, I, I too remember but, yeah. uh, playing uh, Space War, and the interesting thing about it was, and this was the late 60s, it's often said that Pong uh, and Atari invented the uh, 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 video game in the uh, early 70s, uh, of course, Pong was just a matter of batting a little uh, circle back and forth uh, uh, across the screen and quite crude. The uh, Space War game was extraordinarily complicated for the era. Yes, uh, as Eric just said, it uh, correctly uh, handled gravity and the orbits of the uh, object and had recoil when you would uh, fire the... Uh, uh, gun, the spaceship would, you know, bounce back a little and, if, again, affect the orbit. Uh, 
Um, so uh, uh, it really was very advanced for the time. Yes. Is it fair to say that John loved play and games? And I, and I also think it's fair to say that his his, his deep passion and, and what uh, what uh, he'll be remembered for are his uh, ideas. Um, and I guess I'm uh, and I'm curious the ways in which um, his love of ideas. Uh, came across to you in your interactions with him? Maybe, uh, John, let's start with you. Well, I think the one idea that, that I definitely picked up uh, uh, from John was the notion that uh, things in biology were very relevant to computer science and that uh, you could solve different problems by taking analogies to what occurs in nature in biology and use them to uh, solve, for example, engineering and, and mathematical problems. Now, Holland's genetic algorithm is a perfect example of that. You had strings of ones and zeros, which vaguely resemble strings of, of DNA bases. Um, and these, you'd have a population of random strings initially, and the strings would go about their life and uh, the better ones would reproduce and mutate, and most importantly, uh, combine in a in a sexual way, where part a whole maybe a third or half of a string from one parent would be combined with the string part of the string of of another parent. So that's the basic genetic algorithm. But John's and it's produced all kinds of engineering applications, uh, as illustrated by Dave Goldberg's. Uh, uh, pioneering book uh, in the late 80s uh, uh, applying genetic algorithms to a vast variety of engineering problems. But the basic notion that John was communicating was if, if you have a complex problem in engineering or mathematics, it's possible that biology could provide a clue as to how to solve it. And to me, that was the central takeaway it certainly was a central takeaway that uh, I used in the uh, uh, 1990s to work uh, up genetic programming. Sure, and and I, it was always interesting to me as things became more and more popular in genetic algorithms and evolutionary computation. The number of things, the number of different areas that were affected by it, uh, evolving art and evolving poetry, things that you would normally think were beyond. Um, beyond computation, Eric. What, what about you? What? Uh, how did? How did his love of ideas uh, come across to you? Well, you know, he was so eager to communicate with people. He would get very excited, sometimes to the point where his face would turn bright red. Yes. <laughs> uh, in 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 communicating his ideas and and making sure that you understood what he was talking about so he could really share it with you. And I think he got a lot of pleasure out of actually putting his ideas across. And, I mean, one of the key things, for example, uh, it wasn't only the mechanisms of genetic algorithms that were so exciting to him, but the, one of the complex system ideas uh, that was so important was that uh, from a genetic algorithm that just involved uh, uh, bit strings and mutation and crossover and, and uh fitness proportional selection, is, as John said, um, you could get novel emergent properties. You could get surprised. And, of course, 
that's, that is so characteristic of complex systems. You understand all the rules governing them, but you have to actually allow them to run before you see what you get. And, and to, to John, I think that was always uh, uh, interesting, and he was very uh, uh, excited about communicating that kind of interest to people. Yeah, and, and his his enthusiasm. I, I remember his enthusiasm. I I had real doubts about that course. I was really looking for the the right way to do artificial intelligence back in the eighties, and it just seemed to me that this was off the beaten track. But I think it, I think you're right, Eric. I think it was his um, his excitement, and and he was. I mean, he was an outstanding communicator, and he was also a multimodal communicator. He used lots of different ways to communicate, and, and I think. Um, he had some. He had really good analytical skills and used them to say make his case for genetic algorithms. But that wasn't the whole thing. And this same thing in his later work in complexity. It seems as though I I think I I think of him as a great science uh, teller of science stories. I mean, he just told these great stories. Even when when he wasn't sure how it all fit together, he would tell this. Fairly integrated story of how the pieces work together and how the thing, how the thing should work, and you just uh, even where there were no working examples, you just believed that it was it was going to work. John, do you want to comment? Well, I don't have anything to say on that specifically, but thank you. Okay, no, that's that's fine. I just thought I'd give you a, give you a chance. So. Um, and we and we've talked about uh, some of the key ideas that. Uh, uh, he championed. We've mentioned this, the, and and John, I, I think that you've pointed out the central, one of the central contributions is this idea that uh, biology has a lot to offer computation generally, and specifically the idea that evolution and genetics has uh, fairly detailed kind of clues as to how how we might get the kind of surprises that Eric was talking about these emergent. Uh, these emergent uh, conditions, these emergent properties that that uh, we might not necessarily be able to predict from uh, from those basic principles. But what other what other key ideas uh, came from well, John's fertile mind? Well, well, I can give you a good example of, of of applying biology to a computer science problem, and and then applying that back to a problem in biology, okay. and. and when I got involved with this in the 1990s, uh, it was indeed, following John's uh, uh, sort of guidance, even though that guidance is pretty vague. So, so we were busy involving, evolving computer programs to solve different problems using genetic programming, which, which, as I said, was a variation of Holland's genetic algorithm, where the population consists of computer programs that you run and you see how well they do, and then you mutate and reproduce and uh, cross over them. And I was always uh, perplexed by the problem of how you could get uh, a much more complex uh, thing to evolve. So in nature, uh, you have what's something called uh, gene duplication. So there's often a simple solution existing in nature to solve maybe a simple problem. A good example is the myoglobin molecule to which one atom of oxygen binds, and that's a method for storing the oxygen uh, in muscles, and it allows uh, muscles to uh, have the oxygen available uh, when, a, 
when the moment of exertion comes. Um, and then there's a more complicated molecule, uh, hemoglobin, which is almost four copies of myoglobin with some minor differences. Um, and the question arises, in nature, you've got living things with 450 or so proteins, uh, small bacterias, and then you have complex mammals like humans that have maybe 25,000 proteins. And the question is, how did you get from a living thing with a few hundred proteins into a uh, something with 20,000? And one of the big driving forces turns out to be gene duplication, where a simple thing like myoglobin uh, gets uh, used uh, in a slightly more complicated and different way. And that occurs, it's thought, due to gene duplication, where uh, 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 you copy a, a, the uh, gene that produces a, a given protein, and then you make slight variations on it. And as those variations uh, go on for many generations, uh, new uh, functionalities emerge from the new and more complicated functions okay. emerge from simpler ones. So the analogy in genetic programming and computers is we said, well, if that works in nature, why don't we reproduce parts of computer programs that are working somewhat well yeah. at solving a problem and see if by putting them aside in a little subroutine and allowing them to reproduce and mutate and cross over, whether you could get more complex functions. And it turns out that works. And that's an example uh, from my own work where sure. John's sort of broad brush, brush statement that look for ways that biology can help solve computer science problems um, had a direct payoff and, and uh, it worked. Yeah, and sure. In his in his uh, book in the seventies, uh, adaptation of natural and artificial systems, he calls out lots of possible operators and leaves it as an exercise to his students to figure that out. And some of us figured out some of those things and 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 brought them into uh, fruition. Uh, Eric, uh, we've got about a couple minutes to break. What uh, uh, what are some of the ideas that uh, you think, John? Will well, I, I think another whole thing that John was involved with uh, was the evolution of rules or sets of rules. Mm. Uh, and he did this even in his earliest work. He was teaching about this in 1969, even though his book, Analysis of Natural Artificial Systems, didn't publish it until uh, 1975. Uh, but basically, if you imagine trying to match up uh, a pattern against a bit, spring, bit string, uh, the uh, all you need to do is to create something called a don't care symbol. Uh, back then, he used to use what we called a pound sign. Today, you'd call it a hashtag. Uh, but uh, that symbol meant it could stand for either a zero or one. So a bit string, if you had a bit string that was a zero, zero hashtag, that could stand for either zero, zero, zero or zero, zero, one. Well, with this idea, John was able to try and uh, evolve uh, smallest sets of rules that could match uh, a 
set of strings that were in, in a set and not match a set of strings in another set. So it could distinguish or classify things as being either part of what you were looking for or not part of what you were looking for. And he called these classifier systems, and uh, today we call them learning classifier systems uh, to distinguish them from the many other kinds of classifiers that, uh, that there are, classification algorithms. But... Um, uh, this was something that John was very interested in and, and that has caught on. He was able to use the same methodology of uh, what's, what's called a schema to prove theorems, mathematically uh, prove theorems about behavior of uh, uh, genetic algorithms and so forth. So uh, this is something that, that he worked on uh, for many, many years and has certainly got many other people working on it even today. And... I think that's a good way to end our segment. I think these were some of um, his key contributions. Uh, we've uh, and we're delving into them in a in a, an appropriately technical way for for John's legacy. But uh, we'll come back in the next segment and kind of talk about how um, uh, how John was able to influence the formation of a number of institutions and how his legacy lives on in those as well as his whole notion of what interdisciplinarity is about. So this is uh, Big Beacon Radio. We're celebrating uh, John Holland uh, interdisciplinary life with uh, Eric uh, Goodman and John Koza. And we'll come back and and we'll talk about uh, some of uh, John's legacy and how it's going to live on. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 5790 or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. Um, we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at www.wholenewengineer.org. And so we're back um, celebrating uh, John Holland with uh, John Koza and Eric Goodman. And uh, in the last segment, we were examining some of the ideas, uh, some of the technical ideas. And, and, um, and it's pretty clear that um, uh, 
know, John's had a had an influence on how we how we do research, how we do interdisciplinary research, and um, maybe let's start with um, uh, Eric. In many ways, you you started the show talking about how you're you've got your dream job at uh, the Beacon Center at uh, Michigan State University, where you get to work with biologists and computer scientists and engineers and all kinds of cool people. Um, uh, in in what ways is is the kind of interdisciplinarity that you're practicing say different from uh, what we usually call interdisciplinary work? Well, um, many interdisciplinary uh, uh, teams end up uh, having computer scientists do computer science, including programming, writing of tools that are used by biologists to analyze gene sequences or do this or do that, things like that. And what we're talking about in terms of interdisciplinarity is preparing the people by cross-training so that, for example, an evolutionary biologist comes in and we teach them some computer science principles and and teach them about uh, manipulating data and let them do it hands-on themselves. And then we put them with uh, the um, uh, computer scientists who've had a graduate-level course in evolutionary biology, but one that does not assume that they had four years of undergraduate training in evolutionary biology. Uh, and then we put them together in projects and in a, in a follow-on course where they're actually working together and, and actually end up writing papers about what they do. Uh, and so uh, we want them to be thinking together, modeling together, uh, developing uh, things like computer simulations where the input is coming from uh, both of them, not just the computer scientists uh, running away and taking their interpretation of what the biologists should have, but uh, yeah. where they're really thinking about these, these things together. And so that, that's different from a lot of what is practiced as uh, interdisciplinary research. Just putting together a team and sticking people in a room does not make it interdisciplinary well, and, in a yeah, strong sense. And I th- that, I think that's so right. I, so I, I call the, the most common kind of interdisciplinarity that are, you know, a lot of universities say they're interdisciplinary, but what that means is there's kind of a milk the federal cow interdisciplinarity where you put people in a room to write a proposal, you get the money, and then and then you di- divide it up and you somehow integrate it together at the end and you call that interdisciplinary work. But right. the, there would, you know, John was, as an individual, serious about the meaning of and value of different disciplines, and he just just you sort of omnivorous when it came to ideas if there was a cool idea whether it was in linguistics or biology or, or wherever the hell it was he just he would just jump along and bring it in and sometimes as a student it was kind of uh it was it was it was it was hard as a student because he would bring in you'd be talking about one thing and he'd jump in and bring in something else but he was really serious about the value of ideas from outside your discipline Oh, yeah. In, in our required course in that CCS, com, com, Computer and Communication Sciences program, when I was a grad student under John, uh, I mean, we had to go into the lab and do speech spectrograms into the linguistics lab. We took uh, instruction with the medical students on neurosciences. Uh, we uh, studied microbiology. We, yeah. And these were part of our required, I mean, our qualifying exam included a section on one-third of it was on natural systems, they were called. And if you didn't, uh, couldn't explain those, how those systems worked, you didn't pass the qualifier. So it, he was very serious about uh, people learning things from other disciplines. Well, and, and 
you know, it seemed like we kind of had that, you know, or at least uh, at Michigan, they had that kind of right in terms of a new, so a new degree. It's just post, uh, post or right in the middle of the Cold War, post-World War II, kind of a new science comes along and it's kind of daring to be interdisciplinary in this way. But, you know, something happened on the way um, to the forum. It's like a, a lot of that got lost um, in computer science in general and even to a certain extent at uh, Michigan. John, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, John Holland was clearly one of the prime movers, probably the prime mover of the interdisciplinary nature of uh, the computer science program at Michigan uh, uh, in the 60s. Now, I must say, as a student in the 60s, I was somewhat mystified as to why we were being uh, compelled to study uh, proteins and uh, molecular biology and uh, psychology and look into all these things about uh, cogni- what we would call the cognition studies today. Uh, and similarly about why we were looking at uh, uh, speech spectrograms and taking a course in linguistics uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, but, of course, you know, when you're a student, uh, the whole point of going to university is to learn about things that you didn't know that you needed to learn about. <laughs> and so we all did. As Eric says, it was uh, a, an essential part of getting through all the exams and requirements that you had to do to move on to, uh, to get your degree. Uh, this was, I think, a case where uh, maybe it wasn't totally obvious when we were students, but in retrospect, the exposure to this broad range of uh, uh, of different disciplines, uh, I think, was the most valuable part of uh, the graduate education. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go and learn how to program uh, at any university anytime. Uh, they have good programming courses. They have good electrical engineering courses that explain the circuits that make up computers. They have good information theory courses, which give you the mathematical basis of, of, of a good part of computer science. Uh, but what has what disappeared from uh, Michigan uh, somewhere in the 70s, the late 70s, uh, and totally disappeared in the 80s was uh, this mixture of, 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 of broad base of ideas. Um, and unfortunately, I, I don't see that uh, uh, recurring anywhere else. I think it's, it's John Holland's uh, unfulfilled academic uh, Legacy, uh, and it'd be good if uh, uh, we would get back to exposing students to a lot of different things that could be relevant uh, to what they do later. Well, and it's especially relevant to young people today. It seems as though that narrow expertise is, you know, the re- an economist might say that returns to narrow expertise are diminishing, and the kind of breadth that that John was advocating and and um, educating back in the '60s uh, returns to that are kind of increasing. You you better be able to integrate with whatever kind of knowledge is needed to solve whatever kind of problem arises, and I think there's a I think there's a developmental point to make. So so when you when you go to college, you sort of are trained to be an expert in your discipline. And if your discipline says that well, your discipline needs to remain narrow, then that's what you go out and do. And I think actually reflecting on uh, the three of us, it's it's like that 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 experience said gave us permission to sort of go outside of boundaries whenever it sort of 
made sense in much the same way that John always did. John, it was just as natural as drinking a glass of water to go read something in economics one day and biology the next day and linguistics the next day. And you see that and you go, oh, this is what you do um, to be to be successful as an academic. And I guess my experience uh, as an engineering academic um, uh in doing that was always getting strange looks. What are you, you know, what are you doing? Why don't you stick to your knitting of your discipline? And, and I never, after my exposure to John, I never thought it was weird to do it that way. Well, I live out here in Silicon Valley now. Uh, and it's amazing how, as when you read about different startups over the years, how the uh, key founder uh, was often someone who, who combined uh, yes. almost in John Holland's, sense of uh, recombination, uh, expertise in very distinct areas. Uh, just to pick one of dozens of examples, I could give you uh, the uh, founder of Adobe, the uh, 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 software company that, well, among other things, is known for the PDF. But um, he had a background, uh, of, aside from being uh, in computer science, in uh, uh, newspapers and in uh, laying out pages of newspapers uh, with type and headlines and, and arrangements. And if you think about it, that's a fairly unusual uh, uh, expertise for somebody in computer science to have. But, of course, you can see when he uh, created the company, uh, it was exactly that combination of classic computer science and programming expertise with this completely out-of-left-field field of journalism and, and yes and newspaper layout that led to the creation of a, a, a major uh, a company. And there's just dozens of examples uh, out here in Silicon Valley of that kind of weird combination of computer science plus X leading to something uh, quite spectacular. I mean, it just accounts for so much, and, and I, I like your analogy to the genetic algorithm. In many ways, it's 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 not more difficult than taking a couple of big ideas from different areas, putting them together, and coming out with a, a system. We're we're coming to the close of the 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 show. We've got about three minutes left, and so Eric, uh, what else would you like to say about John Holland and interdisciplinary education? Well. Um I think uh, uh, in my own case, uh, uh, the uh, Holland's uh, interdisciplinarity led me to uh, uh, try and combine evolutionary computation with uh, CAD-CAM CAE in the engineering field and, in fact, led to the formation of a successful company, Red Cedar Technology, where we evolved designs for uh, computer, uh, for, for automobile and airplane parts and medical devices and things like that. Uh, I'm not part of it anymore, but, uh, but it's going on to do well. And, and it's an example of combining ideas from one discipline with ideas from uh, evolutionary computation that came directly uh, from John Holland. And so, um, and, and John, uh, from you, what, uh, what else should we say about John and, and interdisciplinarity that we haven't already said? Well, I just think it's an outstanding example of an extremely uh, prolific uh, life that's uh, created a, hundreds of uh, uh, children in the sense of academic children uh, who've gone off uh, and done different things. Uh, I think Eric's Beacon program is yeah. perhaps the uh, clearest uh, embodiment of, of John's 
uh, academic vision, and I wish Eric a lot of luck with it. As as do I, and I remember my last time seeing John was in 2013, and I we happened to be in Singapore together. He was giving a talk at uh, Nanyang Technological University, and uh, you know he's in his 80s, and he still seemed like the youngish prof uh, with all the energy. And it was maybe there's a lesson in that for us too that uh, there's a way to live a life, uh, a full life, and uh, a passionate life like like he did. Um, if We've got a minute left, uh, Eric. If people want to get in touch with you and Beacon, how do they how do they get a hold of you? Well, uh, my email is goodman at msu.edu, or they can go to our Beacon web pages, beacon-center.org. And and John, uh, if, the, if people are interested in your uh, your popular vote uh, campaign or other things, how do they get a hold of you? Well, they could contact Koza K O Z A at nationalpopularvote.com. Be glad to hear from people. Great. Thank you both for joining us to talk about John Holland. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Thank you to you both, and and join us next week, and we're going to talk about creativity and and, uh, Thomas Edison. To learn more about Big Beacon, go to bigbeacon.org. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.